Good morning again, and um, let me add my words of welcome to those that have already been given. If you're new to CVP, we're very glad to have you here. If you've not yet come to know Jesus, we're especially glad you're here and hope you'll come again if there's any way we can assist you in your search for spiritual truth and reality Please don't hesitate to call on us. I also want to thank you for those of you who've been praying for me and my convalescence from my uh, uh, knee replacement surgery. I'm coming along. I tell people the the, uh, starting line is kind of pretty far back, but the finish line is still out of sight. So anyway, I'm glad to, um, and I appreciate your prayers. I love this passage I'm going to preach this morning. I think one of the reasons I love it so much is it's one of those passages that I need so much. Um, this is I, Honestly, I could read this passage every day and, and uh, preach this sermon to myself every day. Um, in uh, January of 2017, Sally and I were in Israel uh, by the grace and mercy of God. And uh, one morning we, were, uh, we had overnighted on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee at a at a kibbutz, uh, kibbutz Ein Gev, and I woke up kind of early that morning, and uh, the night before, the wind had just been roaring down off the mountains. We were scheduled to go out onto the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and when we went to bed the night before, I, I kind of thought, I'm not so sure I want to go out there tomorrow night, you know? And uh, the next morning, the sea was like glass. It was so smooth. And so uh, we had this little kind of patio uh, not far, right outside the room, and I went out and uh, read a couple of passages. One of them actually was the one that Steve read earlier, The Miraculous Catch of Fish. And the other one I read is this one, The Calming of the Storm. Uh, it was a great blessing to me that day, and I hope uh, will be for you as well. Um, uh, I've entitled it, Where is Your Faith?, because those words appear uh, in the text And it's obviously uh, Jesus calming the storm. There are parallels in Matthew chapter 8 and Mark chapter 4. And I'm going to actually speak uh, about some of the wording in each of these parallel passages in Matthew 8 and Mark 4. So if you've got a Bible with you and you have it open, you might, if you've got that many fingers and the dexterity will work for you, uh, you might look at all of them. Let's pray and then have a look at it, okay? Father, thank you for the relevance of your word to strugglers like we are. Um, Thank you for your patience with strugglers like we are. Uh, Thank you that there's a day coming when we will no more struggle to love you and follow you. And Lord, uh, some of us would say that the longer we're in this world, the more we long for that world where there might be no more crying and no more suffering and no more pain and no more struggling. And and Lord, we'll be with you. But until then, you want us to be faithful, and I think this passage can help us, so help us that way. Fill us with your Spirit and use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I remind you, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice, Luke 8 at verse 22. One day he, that is Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. 
And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And he went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Amen. The grasses wither, the flowers will fade. This is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. I want to begin with a reminder about the devil. Strange place to start. The devil is a liar and the father of lies. He lies about Jesus. He lies about true spirituality. Here are some of his lies as they relate to this passage. Actually, I was thinking about some of his lies in my prayer of confession, that some of us think that we're the worst sinner in the room and that the gospel is for people that are a little bit better than us, but not for people quite as bad as we are. That's one of the lies of the devil. Here are some, though, that relate to this passage. If Jesus is in the boat with me, I will not encounter any storms in my life. If I am a good Christian, I will not struggle so much. My life will be more problem-free. It will be relatively easy. If I was more spiritual... I would not be tempted so frequently or so badly. Watch out for Satan's lies. He whispers his lies in our ears and he never announces, this is the devil, I'm lying to you, reject this. Okay. Now, this story is very simple and yet with a very profound point. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. He's on the Sea of Galilee. They're crossing it. Uh, You can see across it, but it's several miles across. A storm blew up. Matthew and uh, Mark call it a great storm, a mega storm. The boat is filling with water, and their lives appear to be in great danger. So what can we learn from this? Well, the first one, maybe one of the big ones in it, one of the obvious ones, if we think and reflect about it, is that there are stormy times in life when Jesus appears to be asleep. Storms come into the lives of Christians in various places and various ways. You fail a test at school. You get a bad annual review or you lose your job. You lose your spouse, your partner, your parent, your child. Your boyfriend or your girlfriend breaks up with you. Your house burns. Sally's dad and my dad came from very uh, different backgrounds, but they both shared this. They both went to church one Sunday morning and came out 
In my dad's case, he could see across the field in Clark County, Mississippi, and their house had burned to the ground. Well, for crying out loud, God, I was in worship. You were in the boat with me. And our house burned down? Sally's dad, they had to walk home (laughs) to find that their house had burned down. Or you have an automobile wreck, or you have more bills to pay than money to pay them with. Or you have an annual physical, and the doctor uses the C word. All kinds of things, storms come into the lives of Christians, and at times, Jesus seems to be asleep. The psalmist in Psalm, 140, Psalm 44 says, Why are you sleeping, O Lord? God's people are in need. They're in a desperate strait. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? We went off to graduate school, uh, left uh, central Mississippi and went to Bowling Green, Kentucky, and then left Bowling Green, Kentucky and went to South Bend, Indiana, somewhere along the the way Sally said, you know, if we keep moving north 400 miles every few years, we'll be at the North Pole before long, you know. And so I get to South Bend, Indiana, and had to put a roof on the house, and the guy that did it left it uncovered, and a rainstorm came. And with raised fists, I'm saying to God, God, I'm doing this for you. I want this degree so I can teach people that are going to pastor your flock. Well, what storms have you experienced? What storms are you experiencing right now? Perhaps some of the things I've mentioned, perhaps others. There are times when storms blow up, and it seems that Jesus is asleep. Secondly, look at how the disciples reacted. I hope I would have reacted as well in some ways. Maybe I hope I would have reacted better in others. They reacted with fear. Uh, the Greek word is phobeo, phobia, fear. But with their fear, they went to Jesus. They woke him up. They had enough faith to at least go to Jesus and wake him up. And I want to look briefly at the words that they speak in Matthew and Mark as well as Luke. In Matthew... They, they go to Jesus when they wake him up, and, and the words are, uh, it, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. They make a request. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And, of course, the words save and perish, it makes you think about sin and judgment. Um, and, and the words save and perish are often used in sin and judgment context, and perhaps that's a picture of that. Mark is... The way Mark uh, shapes this story, uh, he asked a, they ask a question. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care? I've said that. Have you said that? Don't you care, God? Don't you care? Can't you see? Do you not care that we're perishing? There may be somebody in here that's never 
voice those words. But my hunch is, if so, that person's pretty young yet. Sometimes it appears to us that he just doesn't care. Luke here has an exclamation. Master, Master, we're perishing. It's just an exclamation. So how did Jesus respond? Well, in in a couple of ways. First of all, he met their need. Uh, The one who created by his spoken word, let there be. And you know, in John 1, it says, um, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we know that Jesus... Uh, as well as the Father and the Holy Spirit who was involved in creation back in early Genesis. So he created by his words, and here he controls by his words, and he stills the storm. That's great, you know, because the thing, boat's filling up with water and they think they're going to die. But then he addresses the disciples. In Matthew it says this, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So he says, well, look, guys, you've got some faith, but it's only a little faith. In Mark, he says, why are you so afraid? You still have, have you still no faith? And in Luke, it says, where is your faith? And I think they really come to the same thing. He's saying, look, you have faith. You came to me, you woke me up, you have faith, but you're not using your faith fully as you should. He's saying to them and to us, you must consciously and intentionally take the faith you have and apply it to the storms of life, to the things that threaten you and threaten to take away the rest for your souls that the gospel gives you consciously and intentionally take your faith and apply it. And so I ask you, brother, sister, how are you doing in this regard? Are you applying your faith? Are you using your faith? Are you using your faith to still your heart that may be raging like this sea was when the storms of life blow up? Are you doing that? That's one of the reasons we need to live in fellowship so that when we have these struggles, a a brother or sister that's near us and close to us and and dear to us can can remind us of things we've forgotten. I remember when I was first in the ministry, I thought that uh, being a pastor meant showing up with a new and novel, uh, perfectly timed uh, comment Uh, every time there was a crisis that a pastor was called on to deal with. I I mean, young ministers, I think, have uh, stupid thoughts like that. But most of pastoral ministers are reminding of people what they already know. They've just forgotten in the midst of the storm. Absolutely. And you think, is that all there is to it? That's right. So you can do that. (laughs) You can remind people of what they've forgotten. Think of the focus of faith, okay? I may have mentioned this in a previous sermon, but, but you've probably all forgotten, so I'm going to remind you anyway, if I, even if I've said it and hadn't said it, I think it's really important. So if I surveyed this congregation and I said, look, 
I'm thinking about what's called the focus of faith, okay? So if I look backward in time, and, um, I, and you said to me, um, and I said to you rather, do you believe there was a historical person that lived whose name was Jesus? Everybody would say yes. And if I said, do you believe he was the God-man, I think most of you would say yes. And and if I said to you, do you believe he was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and then later was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, you would say yes. And most of you would say yes to that quickly and frequently, I mean, very quickly and very uh, fiercely almost. You would just, you would have no doubts about that. And and so that's the focus of faith looking backwards. So I said, "Look, look, let's look forward. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? Yeah, I believe that. Do you believe the clouds are going to part, the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will rise, and, 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 and those things associated with Jesus' return? Do you believe that's true? And, and again, people would say yes. But the, the focus of faith is not only backward and forward, it's upward. And in the upward focus of faith, it's saying, do you believe that God is alive and on His throne and that He cares and all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose? And most of us get kind of weak and wimpy faith at that point, right? There's a young minister in Portland, Tualatin, I met. I don't know, uh, about December of 2018. I've been here about a half a year. He took over a class I was teaching at St. Stephen's Academy when I became um, interim at Evergreen in Beaverton. His name was Philip. Nice guy. Likeable guy. Cute wife. Four great children. And... Uh, a few years, a few months later, Philip was diagnosed with colon cancer. And uh, he's dead now. He's with Jesus. And um, God knit our hearts together. And I realized in the process that I was the one, one of the ones that was going to really need to minister to this pastor. Um, in his last illness. And I remember saying to him one time, you know, and I'm not putting thoughts in his head. I, I knew he'd had all these thoughts. I said, kind of hard to believe that all things working together for good could mean that you'll die. And somebody else will raise your children and perhaps someday share the bed with your wife. It's pretty hard to believe those things, isn't it? You know, he looked at me like, yeah, I've had that thought. I've had that thought. The focus of faith is pretty easy for me going backwards and pretty easy for me going forwards. But looking up, oh, brothers and sisters, I'm so weak. My hunch is a lot of you are too. That was the problem they had in the boat. They weren't looking up. And realizing that God is their God, covenantally committed to be God unto them. You see, there are two aspects of our faith. There's faith by which we're saved, 
And the faith, the same faith, I'm not saying these are different. They are two aspects of one faith. We're saved by faith and then we live by faith. We take our faith and we apply it. We use it. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Why are you guys not taking your faith and applying it to this storm that's blown up? What is faith? Well, it's taking God at His word. I think that's the most fundamental definition of faith. God says it. I believe it. I try to act on it. Okay, that's the most fundamental definition of faith. But another great word to define faith is trust. Trust. I entrust myself to God for the present and the future. I trust God. For with myself, I give myself over to his care. One of the problems we have is that we don't realize how faith works. Let me give you a couple of images that I think are bad images of how we subconsciously think faith works. Think of a cruise control in a car, okay? So if you, we've got the car we drive mostly is a four-cylinder car, uh, that's got one of these transmissions that's got so many gears you can't count them, you know. And when you set the cruise control in that car and you go up a hill, you know what happens, right? So the thing downshifts, the engine revs up because it's going to keep you at a constant speed as you're going up. And it's automatic, you know. All I, I don't have to have my foot on the gas or anything. Uh, all I have to do is keep it in the lane, you know. It's just kind of automatic. The car just does it. And some of us think faith is like that, right? That uh, I'm cruising along in life, and, and when, when there's a hill to climb, it just automatically comes. More faith comes. Maybe not. Maybe as needs to be a conscious and intentional exercise of my faith in that situation. Here's another one. A thermostat in your house, right? So you set the thermostat. If you've got a really fancy one, it'll choose heat or cooling depending on where it was. But I don't have one that fancy. So in this, this is winter, and so we set it on a certain number. And if it's really cold outside and the wind's blowing, it's magic. I don't have to go put foot, uh, coal or, or, or wood into a boiler. Um, just, it's, it's just, well, the thing just comes on and throws more heat into the house. And we could wish that it just automatically, more faith is thrown into our lives. Now, I'm not saying that it's not by the grace of God and God's not active in the process. I'm not saying that. I'm on the human responsibility side of this. That's what this passage, I think, is about. But faith doesn't work that way every day when you're in the boat and the storm's blowing up. How does faith grow? Well, faith grows by being tested or tried. For those of you that were uh, athletes, you know, maybe you played football and you remember two-a-days. And you got stronger by exercise, uh, by being tested, being tried. Faith is very similar. If you read Hebrews 11, which is considered the great faith chapter, you find over and over the exercise of faith in particular concrete situations. So God said to Abraham, take Isaac, your son Isaac, the child of promise, and take him up to to the mount and sacrifice him. 
well, in, from, from Abraham's perspective, it, it made no sense. But if you read in Hebrews 11 about what he did and why he did and what he expected, you can tell that he took his faith and he consciously and intentionally applied it to that situation. And you read that over and over and over in Hebrews 11, that sort of thing. In 1 Peter 1, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved through various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what are we to do when storms blow up? Refuse to panic. Remember the truths about God revealed in His Word. Reason based on that remembrance and rest on the truth rather than be ruled by the circumstances. One man writing on this topic said, It's always wrong for the Christ follower to panic and accuse God of not caring. Because the panic says to God, you're not trustworthy. It says to the watching world, God is not trustworthy. And it unsettles us greatly. So fourthly, look at the reaction of the disciples in this passage. In Matthew, it says, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, he was a real man. He's fallen asleep in the boat. So it's not like he's some kind of angelic being that doesn't get tired and take naps. You love this, don't you, if you're a napper, huh? And uh, he's the God-man. He's the creator and controller of the winds and the sea. Mark says, who then is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And Luke is, it says, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? What's going on? Well, God is graciously revealing himself to his creatures. He's revealing to himself as the God-man, as the controller, as the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he's revealing that he cares when his people are perishing. He cares when his people are hurting. You'll remember when Jesus uh, came over the Mount of Olives and uh, on, on uh, grief, I'm blanking out, uh, Good Friday? The triumphal entry, that's what I'm trying to say. He came over the Mount of Olives and he saw Jerusalem in the distance, not far away. He began to weep. He began to weep over Jerusalem. He began to weep over the city and the people that would crucify him and reject him. Why was he weeping? Because they had rejected him. Because he had come for their salvation. Because their damnation would be the greater for having rejected him. He cares when storms blow up on his people to test and strengthen their faith. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who or what can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we know Jesus cares? Because he came and died. How do we know Jesus cares? Doesn't the sacrament remind us of that? I was talking to a a Christian person one Sunday afternoon many years ago. uh, And this person was saying to me, I just sometimes don't think God cares. And I knew this person went to a church that had the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and I said, did you have the Lord's Supper this morning at your church? wasn't in my church. It was in another town. And the person said, yes. And what does the Lord's Supper say? Doesn't it say that he cares? I think it says it very loudly. Let me wind this up this way. A magical, pain-free, and problem-free view of the Christian life is fallacious. It's a fallacy. We long for the world that will be problem-free. And if you know Jesus, you will experience that world. But this world is not that world. So there will be present daily problems. And if you're experiencing daily problems, this passage says, do you trust Jesus? If you're facing the problem of final judgment and have never dealt with that, then trust Jesus. The good news in this passage is that Jesus, the God-man, cares. The creator-controller cares. He not only calms storms, he calms anxious hearts. Apply your faith, dear friend to the storms that are in your life this very day. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Note that Jesus is saying in that passage from John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's saying that we need to manage our hearts and not let our hearts... Manage us. Let not your heart be troubled. For some people in 21st century America, that sounds very strange. Because the thought that I would control my heart rather than give in to my heart or have to follow my heart, it seems strange in our therapeutic day and age. But that's what Jesus says. Do not let your heart be troubled. Your heart will want to be troubled. It will tend to be troubled, but you need to apply your faith to that trouble. How do we do that? Well, we just take this faith that God has graciously given to us and and we apply it to the storms of life as they blow up. I close with this. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Twice in that passage, Paul says, I have learned. It wasn't like a thermostat. It did not come automatically. It wasn't like a cruise control. He said, I've learned it. I've learned it over the testing of my faith. I've learned it over this period of months and years of following Jesus. I've learned how to be content. I've learned. And friends, for me and you, it will be a learned response too. I think these disciples learned it eventually. Uh, They died as martyrs. Uh, they, they didn't die uh, running away from the storm uh, that came from being a follower of Jesus. Uh, and you will learn it too. That's part of God's plan for your life. And I trust that this passage will help you in that process. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I, I pray that you'll apply this to my heart. You know how I struggle with this moment-by-moment, day-by-day faith, this upward uh, focus of faith. I find the future faith and uh, faith about past events very easy. But this I struggle with much more. And Lord, I I have fellow strugglers here that I'm praying for in Jesus' name, that you'll help them, that you'll grow us all in our faith, that we will really believe in our heart of hearts that you do all things well, even when those things look like storms and threaten us. And we think we're perishing. But we're not because we're in your hands. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.